You're listening to the Pride On podcast from the Civil Service LGBT Plus Network. Pride Month may be over for this year, but that doesn't mean everything LGBT has to stop. We're keeping this podcast going, where you can hear inspiring LGBT plus civil servants talking about their lives, identities, and what Pride means to them. I'm Jordan Ledger, I'm a gay civil servant, and today I'm your host for this podcast. In this episode, I'll be joined by Dr. James Southern, a historian who's written some brilliant documents on the history of race, class, gender, and sexuality at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And we've included links to all of these fascinating documents in the episode description, so go and have a read. Today, James has agreed to come and talk to me about his history note on LGBT people in the UK's diplomatic service. So let's get into it. Hi James, thank you so much for taking time to speak to me today and welcome to the Pride On podcast. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, so you researched and wrote a brilliant history note on the history of LGBT people at the Foreign Office and you've produced some other really interesting history notes and before we dive into your note, why don't you quickly tell people about yourself and what you do in so I'm a historian, that is that is my job, um, and I'm a slightly unusual historian in that I'm an official government historian. So I worked for about six years in the FCR, um, so the Foreign and Commonwealth Office has its own team of in-house historians, um, and I was, was one of them. And my speciality was um, the history of identity and identity politics um, and diplomatic identities. Um, and the way that the Foreign Office has um, adapted to changes in British society kind of thing over the course of the 20th century. Um, And my main task while I was there was to try and bring this history alive. So I wrote a series, as you mentioned, of short publications, uh, one on the history of uh, sexuality, one on the history of gender, one on the history of class, and one on the history of race. Um, talking about the Foreign Office and its responses to changes in British society on, on those themes. Um, after uh, six years, so about three or four months ago, I switched departments and I'm now working at the Home Office, uh, specifically as a historical advisor on race. Um, obviously, the Windrush scandal um, was was a, was a was a fairly big deal for the Home Office and they're doing everything they can to try and... Um, change the institutional culture there and uh, my job's like quite a small part of that uh, working on race and advising them about the history of race and the legacy of empire and things like that. Well that's brilliant and I think it's good that various parts of government slash the civil service are starting to be more introspective and look at our own history um, because I think it provides that context of how we got here so we can better understand where we might be heading in our description of this episode we'll include the links to your um, various fco history notes um, so that anyone who wants to read them can which i fully recommend that people do because they're just brilliant but let's use that to dive in and talk about specifically your history note on lgbt people within the foreign office um it's titled history notes issue 19 
Homosexuality at the Foreign Office, 1967 to 1991. Your note has a very sweet introduction from Sir Stephen Wall, who is a retired senior British diplomat. And he starts that by saying, the past is a foreign country. Um, And I suppose the irony of which is probably not lost on anyone who reads this. Um, But that's a great place to jump in. So let's start with why the focus on the years between 1967 and 1991? Yeah, well, the the Foreign Office has a a unique um, history among British institutions as far as LGBT rights go, in that um, it was forbidden uh, to be a British diplomat, so to represent Britain abroad, if you were openly gay or lesbian until 1991. Now, of course, while homosexuality, male homosexuality, that is, remained illegal before 1967. Uh, That didn't matter because nobody was openly gay because it was against the law. But after 1967, of course, same-sex relations, um, with particular caveats, were legalised and therefore the Foreign Office suddenly had to decide what it was going to do about openly gay men, whether it was going to employ them or whether it was not going to. And it decided not to, and to impose a bar that lasted until 1991. So that's why I choose those dates. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I see the big thing before 1967 was that the Foreign Office could just rely on the law. But then once the law changed, um, it looks from reading your note that the FCO um, tried to find ways of keeping a ban in some way or another, um, but it didn't have the law to fall back on. The, the focus shifted from gay and bisexual men being a potential compromise because they could be seen to be blackmailed. And also there seems to be this um, historical association, particularly at that time, um, with gay men and scandal and the Soviet Union slash communist scandals. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So uh, ostensibly, the reason why the Foreign Office decided it didn't want gay men, and I mean gay men in particular here, because um, the ban did apply to lesbians, but I'll, I'll talk a bit more about lesbians later because they're in a slightly different situation. Um, but gay men, the Foreign Office considered, were open to blackmail. So the classic example is some Russian spy and uh, traps a UK diplomat um, and in, in a, you know, a classic honey trap uh, and then proceeds to extract information. Um, there had been, before 1967, a number of famous historical examples of this. Um, so the most successful blackmailing operation was um, John Vassell, Um, who was um, a fairly junior British diplomat who was uh, overseas and photographed in compromising positions with other men. He was gay. He was secretly gay. Um, And then uh, the KGB proceeded to extract information from him. Um, And Vassal was eventually caught as he started in the early 1960s. Before that, there had been a number of spy scandals Um, associated with the British security services, but also the Foreign Office, um, involving gay men. So um, the most famous of this, of course, is Burgess and McLean, Guy Burgess and Donald McLean. Um, Guy Burgess was was openly gay. 
and Donald McLean. Um, and these two men stole state secrets over a period, um, over a sustained period, um, and passed them on to the Soviet Union. Uh, both those men were committed communists, and actually their sexuality didn't have anything tangible to do with the fact that they were um, betraying the British government. And they were doing it for ideological reasons. But because Guy Burgess was openly gay and because there were questions there over McLean's sexuality, they developed in the public consciousness, stoked largely by the tabloid press and the media, um, an association between gay men and spy scandals, such that by 1963, uh, Lord Denning, who uh, produced the report into the Perfumo affair, the very famous Perfumo scandal, uh, Lord Denning said that he considered um, homosexuality to, to pose a risk to security, basically a threat to security, a threat to national security. We get there, you know, a very senior judge, senior member of the establishment, uh, publicly announcing that there is this there is this link there. So that by the time the Sexual Offences Act is passed through Parliament um, in 1967, uh, and same-sex acts between two men um, are partially decriminalised, there's already this idea that the Foreign Office um, and homosexuality and spy scandals have this interrelationship and that something needs to be done in the Foreign Office to prevent further scandal. And I suppose that sort of leads on to the positive vetting interview, which I think was the precursor to what modern civil servants will understand as being part of the developed vetting interview, which most people in the Foreign Office have to undergo, and quite a lot of people in other government departments have to undergo a developed vetting interview. Um, But previously, when that was positive vetting, um, relating to security, the questions were around homosexuality. And whilst now that in itself is certainly not a ban, um, back then it absolutely was. And I believe that when the FCO knew that it was sort of imminent, that the law was going to change, um, that they appointed a, air quotes, special investigator um, who would um, sort of head a, air quotes again, elite squad to find out whether some men were secretly gay and they, you know, they had all sorts of things like a, a homosexual checklist and, and things to look out for. And how did that work? So, I mean, the the history of positive vetting and of vetting in the civil service and the security services is, is, is fascinating. And it's still a fascinating subject today because, you know, what, you, what you're doing when you vet someone, um, you're deciding whether or not they are a trustworthy individual and they can be entrusted with national secrets. So it says something about us as, as a society, the types of people we do trust and the types of people we don't trust. So, for example, someone with um, a huge gambling addiction who's got massive debts um, would be considered a security risk because there's a risk there of blackmail. Um, So it says things about us as a society, and there are, of course, more uh, subtle examples um, than that. The the positive vetting um, process was introduced by Clement Attlee's government um, in 1951, Britain uh, was attempting to uh, nurture its new special relationship with the United States and partly because, directly because of Burgess and McLean, but because of those other spy scandals I mentioned, um, Britain was quite keen to prove to the United States that it could be trusted 
with with secrets, you know, with state secrets and things. Remember, we've got things like nuclear weapons being developed, and we've got the the kind of early Cold War with the intrigue and um, espionage associated with that. So Britain's quite keen to prove to the United States it can be trusted. So Clement Attlee introduces positive vetting in 1951, mainly as a way to keep communists out of the civil service. Okay, so anyone who identifies as a communist is obviously um, fairly likely to sympathise with the Soviet Union and therefore is perhaps a threat um, in terms of security. So um, Attlee introduces that in 1951. But over in the United States, um, obviously the McCarthy witch hunts um, exposing communists and kicking them out of government positions um, are very, very famous. But what's less well-known is that alongside the Red Scare, um, Joseph McCarthy himself headed up another campaign, which was called the Lavender Scare. Uh, And this was basically the same thing, but applied to gay men. British officials see that, and because they're trying to impress the Americans and show them they can be trustworthy, they try to adopt some of the main, some of the same methods um, over here. So by the mid 1950s, by 1955, there are criteria relating to sexuality um, incorporated into the positive vetting interviews. So people from the mid 1950s start to be asked about their sex lives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Of course, we have further spy scandals and. Um, particularly after Burgess and McLean, um, there's an FBI report um, blaming the Foreign Office for letting gay men into its ranks and blaming their homosexuality for their treachery. So over time, this kind of, uh, this, this frustration accrues so that by the time the law is changed in Britain in 1967, the Foreign Office has firmly decided that whatever the law it is going to show the Americans and show the world that it won't tolerate gay men in its ranks because this link there is so strong between a lack of trustworthiness um, and um, homosexuality. Um, as you rightly say, um, to try and mimic the American methods, when the when the law changes in '67, the Foreign Office is already developing all kinds of techniques to try to weed gay men out of its uh, recruitment procedures and then out of the uh, existing existing staff. So they appointed a full time homosexual hunter. That's in quote marks, as you say, um, an elite squad. Um, to track down gay men, they sent um, memos out to all posts, offering training in how to spot gay people. They prepared, and I think you mentioned, a, a spotting a homosexual checklist, which had all kinds of ludicrous, you know, psychological um, theory um, kind of um, mutilated and, 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 and represented um, as some kind of test of, of sexuality. Um, so we get this kind of almost like a mini moral panic at the Foreign Office around the time of the change in law. Um, and that's directly because of what's happening in America. Um, but it very quickly starts to fall apart. And by the 1970s, this kind of um, ruthless uh, campaign against gay men has faded away and become a slightly more subtle, culturally different um, method of exclusion. And that's a, I think that's a good point to move on to the 1970s and the sort of changing time and how um, what was happening in gay liberation in Britain in the 70s. 
Um, I suppose it's worth noting that now um, being gay or lesbian or having same-sex relations does not prohibit you from getting developed vetting, although we do still um, get some quiet complaints from some civil servants who say that they have been asked some very intrusive questions about their personal sex lives that they know that straight colleagues do not. So there still is a bit of a legacy, but perhaps that's a conversation for another time. But we got on to the 1970s, which were a changing time in Britain. Uh, gay liberation activism was becoming more organised and more effective at challenging society, and that includes the FCO's policy on not allowing gay and bisexual men to serve. So what was happening in the 1970s? So um, obviously, as you mentioned, um, the gay rights movement really gets going in the 1970s. You've got Stonewall in the late 60s. Um, and then um, in the UK, um, you've got organisations like the Gay Liberation Front um, start to be formed and start to gain traction and attention and start to make some progress on kind of puncturing the public consciousness there with the, the issue of, of gay rights. And of course, they're you know, extremely effective um, at doing that for the most part. But there are different strains to the gay rights movement in this period. And one of the strains is a slightly more conservative uh, flavour, if you like, of um, gay rights activism. Uh, and that comes in the form of the uh, the Campaign for Homosexual Equality, so the CHE. And um, the CHE basically focuses its activism on institutional campaigns. So it starts right into to politicians, to the civil service, to other big businesses, the BBC, and starts um, demanding uh, equal rights for openly gay people within organisations. So you start to get that kind of... Um, activism but in a more sort of gentle and targeted way at the foreign office um in in the 1970s and it starts to crop up in uh, in foreign office um, minutes and, and and in the archives and things like that um and consequently the foreign office starts to be concerned about its public reputation it starts to be concerned about being exposed as a homophobic institution that doesn't offer equal rights uh, unjustly and so you start to see a change in tone from this early panic about impressing the Americans through the 1970s, this kind of um, gradual realisation that things are perhaps eventually going to have to change, even if not immediately. And you get examples of men who have been serving at post, have been um, discovered to be gay, been, been exposed, um, but he then start negotiating with the Foreign Office. So rather than, as had been the case in the sort of late 60s, being immediately moved to another department or fired, they'd start to negotiate with the Foreign Office and say, well, I will go to the newspapers, I will expose you. Um, I know the campaign for homosexual, uh, homosexual equality, for example, um, knows about this case and start to negotiate. So you start to see this, this slight sort of um, retreat almost from the Foreign Office, although the voices are still there that say, this is a security risk, so we can't possibly let gay men um, into the foreign office. Um, so it starts to change, change in tone slightly. I think I saw there was an interesting line in your document that it sort of made me chuckle a bit, but I suppose we can looking back at it now. I think it's a note from a senior civil servant at the DHSS, the old name for the Department for Work and Pensions, who was bemoaning that their department was swelling with communists and homosexuals who had come over from the foreign office after being uncovered, which I suppose it's okay to laugh at now because it, I see the 
sort of humor there, but it was sort of an insight into the way of the Foreign Office dealing with the situation or, or rather not dealing with it, as it were. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you you get um, quite a lot of um, exploratory arguments from the Foreign Office. So when the blackmail argument starts not quite to stack up and, and people get more comfortable coming out to their families and their friends and things like that, um, largely as a result of the you know the gay rights movement making making society a kind of more welcoming place. The Foreign Office starts to wonder about this blackmail argument about whether actually people can be blackmailed um, off the back of their sexuality. Um, so therefore starts to explore arguments like is homosexuality comparable to uh, gambling and alcoholism um, and indeed the, the loquaciousness I think is mentioned at one point. So the, the, those kind of um, what are consi- considered um, personality weaknesses or whatever or what were considered considered to be those things, whether homosexuality can be categorised with those things, um, whether gay lifestyles, as as diplomats in the 1970s understood it, um, are compatible with the lifestyle of a diplomat, are compatible with the public-facing side of diplomatic work, um, all those kinds of things that stand to explore, you know, they start bringing in scientists and psychologists to explain what is a gay man, um, how does a gay man differ from a straight man? Uh, is this compatible with the type of person we want working here? So it all gets quite creative, actually. And there's this there's this kind mm. of strange tension between a, a, a self-realisation that liberalisation is going to have to come further down the line, but wanting to explore all the potential arguments and all the potential fallouts from, from any possible change in the rules at the same time. And it looks like when we get into the 1980s, the justifications um, for the ban um, were becoming a little bit desperate, almost. And the FCO seems to be clutching at straws. And with things like one diplomat asking in a note whether declared homosexuals are representatives of the Queen and whether that would be accepted by the international community or, or whether gay men and lesbians would simply be unpostable, as it were, because um, being gay was illegal in so many countries and that was sort of the the last sort of justification so what was happening in the 1980s so in the 1980s um obviously the the debate about gay rights gets a lot more volatile in the sense that we have the AIDS crisis which polarizes public debate and changes the character of the debate about gay rights and you've also got in the Thatcher government who pretty destructive in, as far as gay rights go, um, famously with section, section 28, um, but with lots of, other, um, lots of other pieces of legislation and speeches and things like that. So what happens at the Foreign Office is diplomats sort of start to almost internalise that debate. So you get some diplomats who become suddenly very vehemently opposed to the idea of letting gay men into the diplomatic service because that political culture is so volatile and because these arguments are getting so visceral, um, they are increasingly opposed. There are sections of the diplomatic service increasingly opposed to changing the rule. But at the same time, because you know time's moving on and, and people are getting more and more comfortable coming out and you've got um, increasing visibility of gay lifestyles even, even more in the 1980s. Um, there are plenty of diplomats saying that this is getting ridiculous, it's about time we, we change, change the rules. Um, so it becomes very polarised, rather like the debate in wider societies is, is, is polarised. 
And of course, at the very end of the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher obviously leaves 10 Downing Street. And one of the first sort of major things, if you'll excuse the pun, one of the first major things John Major does um, is um, overturn this ban. So it's in the summer of 1991. And he uh, publicly announces that because of, and the words he used were changing social attitudes, the bar on gay men and lesbians working for the diplomatic service is going to be lifted. There's lots of theories um, about why I left the band then. Obviously, the Cold War ended, so uh, there's a lot of suggestion that the threat of blackmail has diminished. John Major himself obviously said changing social attitudes. But on reflection, I mean, looking at the debates within the Foreign Office, if, if you kind of follow the debates through from the 70s through the 80s, you just see this uh, swelling up of opinion um, that it's time for a change and this is an archaic and outdated uh, rule and it's about time we, we moved on, really. Um, and then the debate completely changes character in the 1990s. And most of the um, debate in the 60s, 70s and 80s focuses on gay men because, unsurprisingly, men made up a larger proportion of foreign office staff. But what is the story and how is that different for lesbian women and bisexual women um, in the foreign office? Yeah, the, 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 the lesbianism debate is, 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 is fascinating in that ostensibly open gay women were prohibited from working as diplomats, but there's very little evidence of women ever being removed from their jobs. Um, I mean, don't forget, for most of this period, women weren't really in senior positions within the diplomatic service, so there's that element. But, you know, there's junior men being removed as well, and there's no evidence of, of an equivalent um, number of women being removed from their jobs or being exposed as being openly gay, what, what have you. So if you kind of look at the way lesbianism is understood in the Foreign Office... There's a lot of kind of cliches and it's we've got a group of male diplomats who've decided that lesbians um, are much more stable in their relationships, live much quieter lives, don't go out partying, don't, um, you know, behave promiscuously. Um, all these kinds of things are a lot more emotionally stable, etc., etc. You get these kind of very strange um I mean, where they come from, I don't know, but these are strange opinions from these like older male diplomats um, who have decided that lesbians are somewhat safer um, than gay men. And I suppose that what is probably familiar to a lot of LGBT people is that the senior diplomat's attitude to other people in the Foreign Office isn't that different to many people in Britain's attitudes towards LGBT people in Britain anyway. There is lots of, you know, their ability to, to do their job is constantly raised as, you know, a problem that LGBT people face that, you know, just because of their sexuality. There are questions around whether they can simply do their job. Um, and that is a big part of LGBT history. But I'm conscious that we're running out of time. And there is more that happens after 1991, when the ban is lifted, but thankfully from then onwards, it is much more positive. Um, and when we move into the 2000s and 2010s, obviously there's a massive liberalisation of LGBT-related laws and social attitudes in the UK and beyond. And now we have um, openly gay diplomats um, serving abroad, representing the UK, um, and we have a number of LGBT civil servants working um, in the Foreign Office at home, and as part of um, the FCO's mission to support and strengthen human rights around the world, promoting LGBT rights is a core part of that. So I suppose in the last 30 years, 
um, we have a much more positive story to tell. Yeah, absolutely. There was a few kind of difficulties in the 1990s deciding whether or not gay people could be, you know, posted to countries where homosexuality remained illegal. And even that, in such a short space of time, even that has now flipped and become a kind of badge of honour for the Foreign Office, that whether homosexuality is legal or not in certain countries, the UK Foreign Office is, takes pride in the fact that um, it posts people wherever and protects them and um, works hard to ensure that they can be themselves. Um, so it has been quite a turnaround. There's obviously still a lot to do. Um, but um, it's one of the one of the good news stories, I think, of identity politics. Um, British diplomats, openly gay British diplomats um, in the 21st century, certainly. It took a long time to get here, but we are in a good place now. Lots of people in the Foreign Office feel very proud of, um, not just because of um, standing proud around LGBT rights, but a number of other human rights as well. So that is a really good story to tell. So people should definitely have a read of your history notes. Um, they're very accessible. And in this month of pride, it's always important to remember your own history. So James, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us. And um, I hope you... Um, well, I hope you have. I hope you survive lockdown. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me. That's the end of this episode of the Pride On podcast. Thank you to Dr. James Southern for taking the time to speak to me about his fascinating history notes. If you're not already, you can subscribe to this podcast on all your favourite podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can find out more about the Civil Service LGBT Plus Network on our website at www.civilservice.lgbt and add forward slash pride for the latest information about this year's pride activities. You can follow us at CSLGBT on Twitter, at Civil Service LGBT on Instagram and visit facebook.com forward slash Civil Service LGBT for all the latest updates. Until next time, thanks for listening.